If you would grab your Bible, turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Now, for the sake of orientation, I probably should have told you what I'm about to tell you now when we actually started our study of Ecclesiastes some two weeks ago. But let's be honest, you'd have forgotten by now if I had told you the beginning anyway, so it's just as well that I tell you this morning. Uh, But here's what you need to know. The book of Ecclesiastes is widely recognized to be broken into four movements. It's a four-movement book marked by four tentative conclusions that Solomon makes all of which build upon each other. So we've concluded our consideration of the first section of Ecclesiastes, and we've considered Solomon's first tentative conclusion. It's where Solomon asserts and then supports the assertion that everything is hebel. That was the Hebrew word that's translated in in most English Bibles, uh, vanity or meaningless. Uh, And we noted that the word means vapor or mist. And so that's his first tentative conclusion. That's the first thing that he wants to to drill down for us. Everything that we do under the sun is vapor that is gone almost as soon as it arrived, and it seemingly has no lasting effect or impact. We find ourselves trying to squeeze meaning, purpose, satisfaction, and significance out of that which seems to simply go round and round and round, And simply, as it goes round and round and round, it seems to be undoing the work that we did with each rotation. So, some examples of that. We resist tyranny from Britain only to grow tyranny on our own shores. As the work that was done gets eroded over time such that that work has to be done yet again. I cut my grass last Monday so that I can cut it again tomorrow. We're always solving today's problem so that we'll have the bandwidth to solve tomorrow's problem. Life, nature, is insatiable. It takes and it takes, demanding more and more of our labor, and nothing is ever done. We're caught up in this. We're not in control of it. Finding ourselves as beings who deeply need satiating, satisfying, but we're in a place that is itself insatiable. Everything that is done must be redone, and every bit of satisfaction that we taste evaporates almost as soon as we tasted it, such that that same satisfaction has to be achieved again and again and again because it never lasts long enough that we don't have to repeat the process of seeking that satisfaction yet another time. That's what the preacher Solomon means when he says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. I'm just going to have to do this again tomorrow. It's never done. Nothing lasts. Nothing permanently satisfies. And trying to get it to, he says, is like trying to grasp the wind. But Solomon also ended that first section last week by pointing us forward in chapter 2, verses 24 through 26, to the reality that he's going to begin to unfold now. That reality being the fact that those who please God may be given the gift of enjoying all of this vanity. Those who please God may be given the gift of enjoying all of this vapor, all of this hebel. We cannot, as vapor, squeeze satisfaction out of vapor, but God in his grace may give it to us such that we could find wisdom and knowledge and joy in the vapor that is not inherent to it, but may come through it as mediated by the God who stands over it. That is to say that God can give you something through this vapor that is not endemic to it, that's not inherent to it. 
In the same way that he gives to us something through the bread and the wine that are not endemic to them. In the same way that he gives to us something through death that is not endemic to it. This is how God works, isn't it? He takes things that shouldn't be able to give us anything particularly meaningful, and he makes it produce something. He makes it something that is tremendously meaningful, despite the fact that there wasn't all that much meaning bound up in it in itself. But notice that in chapter 2, verses 24 through 26 that we covered last week, when Solomon gives us this declaration of the hopeful direction toward knowledge and wisdom and joy, that he does not say that knowledge and wisdom and joy will be found in the discovery that he was actually overstating his case or being a little bit sarcastic when he declared that everything was vain. He's not rescinding his conclusion and saying, okay, I'm, I'm done depressing you now. Uh, I maybe overstated things. I was being a little bit hyperbolic. Not everything is really vapor. Uh, there actually is a lot of meaning bound up in things under the sun. No, he never rescinds his conclusion. He's just going to build on it. But he's going to continue to drill down. No, it really is vapor. No, it really is all hebel. He keeps his foot on the gas pedal with regard to the advancement of that assertion. But he does tell us that though all is vanity, the Christian can be given the grace of God that will allow him to wisely and knowledgeably find joy in that vanity. This is where modern Christians often part ways with Solomon in their teaching of the book that he wrote. We're tempted to subtly alter Solomon's point by saying that joy and wisdom and knowledge can be found under the sun. You just have to have the right perspective and the right outlook. But Solomon doesn't say that. Those things, joy, wisdom, knowledge, that he's saying we can actually access somehow, some way, actually come from the God who is over the sun. And he give those, gives those things to the people who please him under the sun. But there's no discovery of those things under the sun itself because those things truly don't exist under the sun. That's why it's such a wonder when you see somebody who possesses those things under the sun. That's why it's a marvel. That's why God's people are set apart and stand aside from the other people who couldn't find the knowledge, the wisdom, and the joy. Because it's, you're not going to find it under a rock somewhere. You're not going to find it behind a tree. It's not under the sun. It has to be given to you by the God who is over the sun. So this life really is a vaporous cycle of doing and undoing our work. It really is that. It really is this cycle of exacting our toil over and over again with no substantive changes being brought forth as a result of our effort. But Solomon says, you can enjoy it anyway. You can enjoy it anyway. Now, in this second section of the book, which spans from chapter 3 to chapter 5, we'll see why he says that. So, that brings us to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born, and a time to die. A time to plant, and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill, and a time to heal. A time to break down, and a time to build up. A time to weep, and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. 
a time for war and a time for peace. In the first section of the book, Solomon emphasized our lack of control over our lives. You'll remember that from week one. But in this second section, he emphasizes God's total control over our lives, which is why it's okay that we don't have control. That's the next thing that he's building here. So verse 1 of chapter 3, he says, there is a time for every season. Now, the Hebrew word that's behind our English word season means appointed time, appointed time. So you can see the conclusions beginning to stack up between these two sections. We're Hebel, we're Hebel in control of nothing, but everything that we're not in control of, God controls. That's how these things are, are creating a stair step, as it were. Solomon wants us to have knowledge and wisdom and joy, so he's building this lexical staircase to help us get there. The first step is understanding our lack of control. Today we take another step, which is understanding God's comprehensive control. Here's Martin Luther's excellent commentary on the verses that we just read. He says this, All human works and efforts have a certain and definite time of acting, of beginning, and of ending, that is beyond human control. Thus this is spoken, that being uh, Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 8, thus this is spoken in opposition to man's will. It is not up to us to prescribe the time, the manner, or the effect of things that are to be done. And so it is obvious that here our strivings and efforts are unreliable. Everything comes and goes at a time that God has appointed. So he, Solomon, proves this on the basis of examples of human works whose times lie outside the choice of man. From this, he draws the conclusion that it is useless for men to be tormented by their strivings and that they do not accomplish anything unless the proper time and hour that's appointed by God has come. So that was a long quote, but I thought helpful. So Solomon's teaching us about the exhaustive nature of God's sovereignty. We often cite this text, Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 8, in, in kind of sentiment, sentimental ways, right? We, we employ it generally for sympathetic reasons, uh, helping people to navigate whatever emotional state they may be in at the moment. They were, something negative has happened and they find themselves angry or they find themselves sorrowful or whatever it is and will often just say, hey, that, that's okay, you know, there's a time for all of those things. But the passage is about God's activity in appointing the times. It's not about man's activity in responding to God's appointment. These verses set the stage for this second section of the book, which is all about God's plan, God's work, and God's control, which is the ground of our enjoyment of our work in the midst of our lack of control. So, so take a look at that list in verses 1 through 8 and realize that Solomon is asserting that God is the ultimate cause and source of all of those things because he's the one who appointed those times and seasons and said, yeah, I'm going to send that to Jody now. Yeah, I'm going to send that to Jeremy now. That's what, that's what the word means. Season. It's the appointed time. Well, who's the appointer? It's got a capital A. It's God. It's God. And season really is a good word for it because we already know and acknowledge the natural seasons to be outside of our control, don't we? 
Solomon's saying, you wouldn't waste your time, effort, and energy trying to stop winter from coming, would you? No, you wouldn't. You'd just do your best to enjoy it when it comes because you know you have no control over it. It's the same idea. He's saying, neither can you stop any of these other seasons from coming because God appoints them all. So you do your best to enjoy them as they come. This gets to the way that we should do what Solomon says Christians ought to be able to do. Namely, enjoy and see the goodness of life under the sun. This is, it, it really was an odd thing that Solomon did in chapters 1 and 2, wasn't it? Because he, he seems to be describing this abysmal, draining, tiresome, wearisome place. We go round and round and round, never being able to move forward in any substantive way. And then he concludes that section by saying, and I can think of nothing better than to enjoy your toil. You're like, wait, how, how does that make sense? What he seeks to do in this second section is to tell us how that makes sense. He's said that Christians ought to be able to enjoy and see the goodness of God in life under the sun, not in spite of those things being true, but even because they are true. But, but how do you, knowing that life is just going round and round, that you're just going to toil till you die, constantly repeating the same actions and scenarios endlessly until the repetition kills you, I mean, that's the point that he's making. That's what he's saying. Realize that sounds like a downer. It's just what the Bible says. So how do you know that? How do you process it deeply? How do you, as Solomon says, have your eyes in your head? Not be the kind of people who just sort of put a positive veneer over everything and pretend that things aren't as abysmal as they are. How do you have your eyes in your head so that you're really assessing what's going on in our society, in our personal lives? Tragedy is really tragedy. Pain is really pain. You don't veneer it all. How, how do you do that? How do you see that? And then do what he says to do in chapter 2, verse 24. Eat and drink and enjoy your toil. How do you do that? Well, it's because of the way that verse 24 ends that we can do that, because here's how he ends that section. This also is from the hand of God. This also is from the hand of God. That's how we enjoy it. Because we know who it's from and we trust him. In verses 1 through 8 of chapter 3, Solomon poetically ties up the whole of life and he hangs it in the house of God's sovereignty on the hook of God's providence. Again, Solomon is building a conclusion atop his conclusion. He said, everything is hebel. That's conclusion one. But conclusion two, nothing is haphazard. And it is on the basis of this hebel having been ordered by God that we can enjoy it. That's the idea. Everything is hebel, but nothing is haphazard. Now that should strike our ears as being a comforting thing. I can see from the facial expressions that some of you have been in church long enough to know that you should be affirmed by that. But let's think for a minute about our natural reaction. You see, as modern people, or actually I'll just say as people, it doesn't even have to be modern because you're going to see as the book unfolds that Solomon anticipates some objections to his doctrine of God's sovereignty and he's going to answer some of them. We'll get to that next week. But as people, we are obsessed with personal autonomy. We're often made very uncomfortable by the amount of control that Scripture says God actually has and exercises over us. Makes us wildly uncomfortable, especially if you're a libertarian. 
and it makes you dramatically uncomfortable. But you see, Solomon includes, as part of God's plan, all kinds of things that we thought were part of man's plan. Did you, did you notice that as you were reading verses 1 through 8? A time to kill? Who appoints that? A time to hate? A time to make war? God appoints those times. That's verse 1. Verses 1 through 8. That's the banner under which everything falls. God appoints these times. Solomon even makes God the capital A appointer of our emotions. Did you see that? A time to weep? A time to mourn? A time to laugh? Who appoints those? God does. We don't control the seasons. We just respond to the season that God has put us in. And this gets to the real reason why, to last week's message, you can't beat, leverage, or gain an advantage over life and impose your will upon it. It's because God has already imposed His. And the psalmist says in Psalm 115, verse 3, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. There are, of course, debates that rage among believers over the topic of systematic theology that emerges most naturally from a consideration of these verses, that being, some of you are already thinking about it, that being the doctrine of God's sovereignty. How exhaustive is it? How much does it impose upon man's will? All of these would be questions that may be leaping to your minds even as I'm speaking. And what I've found anecdotally is that how an evangelical answers those questions is entirely dependent upon how you frame that question. I remember one day last year I was driving down the road and I was coming to an intersection and, and I had a green light. So you got a green light, you're going to keep driving, right? Well, as I'm crossing the white line that is the barrier for my intersection, I get into the middle of the intersection and, and a car comes barreling through their red light and very narrowly misses me. Very narrowly misses me. This person was clearly in a hurry and had somewhere to go. Just disregarded that red light. And I'm, I'm talking, they, they were cooking. Like they were speeding already and didn't even slow down for this red light. It wasn't even like check for cops, nothing. Just barrel through. So as I crossed the intersection, which I was able to do safely, do you know what I did instinctively? What did I do? <laughs> I screamed with joy. Right? I, I thanked the Lord. I said... Father, thank you that I was not just in a life-altering collision with another vehicle, instinctively. I wasn't even thinking theologically. That was my impulse, was to thank God for the fact that I was not struck by that vehicle. Now, most Christians would agree that I was right in my impulse, right? It was the right thing to have thanked God for his provision in that intersection, but once we've acknowledged the rightness of me thanking God for that, we've also acknowledged that God was in control of absolutely every detail that led up to that scene. Have we not? The time that I left the house, the time that the other driver left his, the timing of the traffic lights that brought us to the intersection, the speed of my vehicle, the speed of the other vehicle, which given the slightest amount of difference would have led to a totally different outcome. You see? Thanking God for such a thing betrays the fact that every Christian knows that God is not generally sovereign, but meticulously sovereign, down to the details. That's why we thank Him for those kinds of things. And of course, Scripture also affirms this when in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 20, we're told to thank God always and for everything. Well, how can you thank God always and for everything unless God is always doing everything? 
Wouldn't make any sense, right? But once you frame it differently, we can make it more challenging, can't we? Once you frame it differently or change the analogy from the near escape of the singular motorist to the death of the mother and her children in the same intersection, we're less quick to see anything of the hand of God in it, aren't we? It's one or the other, though, isn't it? It's one or the other. And in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, Solomon tells us which one it is. And frankly, so does the rest of Scripture, over and over and over and over again. Now, as a low-hanging fruit example, we can look at the life of Joseph. You know about the saga of Joseph's life, sold into slavery by his brothers, and the sordid tale of his, uh, those unfortunate events. Actually, unfortunate is a, a word that totally undermines the concept of God's sovereignty because there is no fortune, right? But you, you take the colloquial meaning of, of the word. Uh, but all of those events that led up to his eventually becoming second in command over Egypt. But as the narrative is moving to a close, Joseph confronts his brothers who had sold him into slavery with the famous line, you know it, that what God, or excuse me, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Now that is to say that when Joseph's brothers beat him up, when they threw him into the bottom of the pit, when they sold him into slavery, God meant it. God meant it. God intended that. God purposed that. And his purpose in it transcended the brother's purpose in it. And, and praise God that it did, right? God was active and present and presiding over Joseph being beaten up, thrown into a pit, and then sold. God says, I meant that. We're often in evangelicalism trying to absolve God of guilt for things that he's raising his hand saying, that was me. Don't you give my glory to somebody else. Don't you say Satan was in charge of that. I sent that. Satan doesn't control the seasons. We're not dualists. You know what Satan can control? What God lets him. Right? We are not dualists. They're not two gods. It's not yin and yang. There's no real cosmic battle where it's like, hey, what's the outcome going to be? No. God wraps and rolls all of these things up into his plans and his purposes, and he is the author of our lives. God appointed that season in Joseph's life, and he had a meaning in it, again, that transcended the brother's meaning. Because the will of man is always subordinate to the will of God. If God cannot do this, if God does not do this, then he is not God. Because he does not control what he made. It's gotten away from him somehow. It's like, I really wanted to help the mom and, and her children, but I was too busy over here. I didn't see that when I was saving Wes. I, could, I couldn't get there. No. God is not making decisions in those moments and deciding what he will and will not do in this person's life and in that person's life. Then he's simply not God. But Solomon assures us, God's creation has not gotten away from him somehow. It is firmly in his grasp that he is the one who appoints all of our times and seasons. Now Solomon brings this up because the sovereign assignment of God legitimizes our joy in an otherwise vain and vaporous world. Again, the meaning and joy of life under the sun is not inherent to it. It's bound up in the fact that God has appointed me to it. Let's read verse 9. 
He poses the question, he's posed it already, what gain has the worker from his toil? What gain has the worker from his toil? This returns us to an earlier theme because he posed that same question in chapter 1, verse 3. But why would Solomon pose that question again following verses 1 through 8? I believe that he reposes the question in order to show what we're generally trying to gain from our toil. You see, among the various seasons that are listed in verses 1 through 8, there are some that we like and there are some that we don't like, right? As you go through the list in verse 8, there are some things that we're like, yes, more of the dancing, that'd be great. Yeah, more of the, more of the laughing, I'll take all of that. And then after this list, Solomon poses that question. He says... What Remind me again, what can man gain from his toil? What, what connection is he making there? What's he trying to get us to think through there? Well, he's trying to expose the fact that much of our toil is aimed at trying to extend the seasons that we like and shorten the seasons that we dislike. That so often what we're actually trying to do is control our lives. So often what we're trying to do is saying, I'm, I'm in season X, but I'm not going to be here contentedly and see what God might want to teach me through it. No, now I'm going to diligently work to try to get myself out of the season that's been appointed to me. And, and so he, he poses this question, can your toil actually undo the season that God has put you in? No, no, it can't. We work feverishly to determine the seasons of our lives, but the problem with that is that God has already planned them. And whose will trumps whose? The answer is clear. Let's look at verses 10 and 11. I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He's made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he's put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Now here we see the real foundation of Solomon's joy in the midst of all of the hebel. Simply put, his joy comes from his faith that God does all things well. That's really it. That's really it. He sees the business that God has given man to be busy with. He sees the seeming frivolity of it. We eat, we sleep, we work, we repeat until it kills us. He's got his eyes in his head. He sees nobody's getting off of that. Until the Lord comes back and ends history, like that's, it is what it is. It's what you're going to do. It's what your kids are going to do. You're going to go to school so that you can get a good job, so that your kids can go to school, so that they can get a good job, so that their kids can go to school, so they can get, right? That's, that's, what, we, that's what we are. That's what it is. Trapped by the demands of nature. But Solomon knows that God makes all things beautiful in their time. Such that none of that eating, sleeping, working, repeating, or dying falls outside of God's sovereign overarching plan, which includes every one of those little seemingly frivolous details, like when you leave the house or the traffic light's timing. Includes all of those details. But we know that this is a statement of faith because Solomon has acknowledged that this plan gets revealed in eternity. God's put eternity into man's heart, which is to say that we've got a sense. We've got a sense that this is actually headed somewhere despite looking around us and seeming like it's like this. History seems to be on a loop. Even our own sin struggles feel like they're on a loop, don't they? 
You've had that moment, you hear that sermon, and it just convicts you to the core. It's like, God, I'm done with sin X, Y, or Z. And then you get back on the carousel, don't you? Experience that? That is to say, we've been talking in Ecclesiastes about the macrocosm that is this carousel, but you live on that carousel down to the inner workings of your life. Fighting and battling the same impulses, saying no to yourself in the same way a thousand times, never getting to the point where seemingly that thing's actually uprooted. It's like, I'll just never struggle with that again. <laughs> just so thoroughly uprooted that it's gone. No, you're on the carousel, man. You're going to have to tell your flesh no again tomorrow. What's the Apostle Paul say? I have to die every day. You see? Everything's hebbled. Round and round and round. But we've got this sense of eternity. We've got this sense that God has some ultimate, some transcendent, some real end, some release of the tension where we finally get back to the one chord and resolve. Got this sense of it. But we can't see the beginning and we can't see the end, so we're not exactly sure. We're caught in the middle, which is the tension-ridden part. So we're unable to make sense of the beginning or the end, uncertain how all sorts of things that we observe could possibly be made beautiful. And that's why I argue that this is Solomon's statement of faith. Because what he sees does not necessitate the conclusion that he draws. It's simply, yeah, what I'm seeing is everything that I described in chapters 1 and 2. But what I can tell you, not based on sight... But based on my faith is that God is going to make these things all beautiful. So it's a statement of faith that grounds the joy that Solomon calls us to. It doesn't have anything to do with what he sees, but only as he states over and over. If you've read the book, you'll know that he uses this phrase all the time. It's not what he sees, it's what he perceives. He's saying all the time, I perceived this, I perceived this, which is sight beyond sight. We'll get there later. Because what he sees is vanity, vapor, mist, hebel. That's what he sees. But what he perceives is an assignment from God to that hebel in which he then takes delight. Not because the assignment itself is delightful, but because he delights in the one who assigned it. That's the idea. But as I draw it to a close now, and I mean that truthfully. <laughs> verse 11 made me think of one of the ways that I've tried to teach my children about joy and trust in the Lord. So one day at, at random, Heather and I, this was really fun uh, for us anyway. The kids actually didn't seem to enjoy it all that much. So you could try this, but maybe, maybe your kids would like it more. But what we did is uh, we, we got the kids and we're putting them in the car and we just said, hey, we got to go somewhere. Didn't tell them where, didn't give them any information. And right before they got in the car, we blindfolded them. Right? So if your kids get motion sickness, don't, don't try this. You'll be cleaning up your car seat. Uh, but So yeah, we blindfolded them, and uh, we pulled out of the driveway. And I had to do, Ava's got a good sense of direction, so I had to drive all kinds of ways to make sure she didn't know where we are. Otherwise, she'd be like, we turned out the driveway, we turned left, Dario's right there. She was calling the shots, so had to disorient her a little bit. And, and so what I did is I drove to a place that they'd never been, that they totally did not recognize at all. Uh, we ended up in the, the loading dock of some factory in King that I personally had never seen before. And so once we parked there, we took the blindfolds off. And I said, you guys know where you are? I said, no. I said, are you, are you scared? Are you frightened at all? And they, they said to me, sort of confused, 
no, should we be? <laughs> like, is something bad about to happen that I just don't know about yet? Or what's the deal? I said, well, you guys do realize that you were just put in a vehicle, blindfolded, taken to an undisclosed location, and even upon arrival, you still did not know where you were. Nothing about that's frightening? You know what they said? They said, no, Dad, you were driving. I, I trust you can see the connection that I made for them. If Dad's the one behind the wheel, I'm not frightened by any of the potential destinations because I trust Dad. That's the idea. And that point is Solomon's point. What he's saying is, though we can't figure out exactly what God is doing from the beginning to the end, though we're caught in the middle, not quite sure, we're in the middle of the ride with the blindfold on, and we should have smiles as wide as they can be, because we know that Dad only takes us to the places that we should be. Not all the places that we want to go, but all of the places that we should be. That's where he takes us. And this is the ground of Solomon's joy. And so we have his second conclusion. The first, it's all hebel and beyond our control, which initially sounds very scary. But then two, none of it is haphazard, and it's all under the control of our gracious Father. May we live in light of these truths. Let's pray.